Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, inflation takes top billing as the Trudeau and Polyev showdown begins. But are these leaders letting their dislike for each other get in the way of what's right for Canadians? Groups representing thousands of public sector employees are going up against the Ontario government in court starting today over that contentious law that has capped wages for workers. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner will join us to talk about that. And Ontario courts have ruled that the COVID-19 vaccine mandates made by colleges are legal and enforceable. What could that entail? We're going to get into that as well. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of news, of course, in Ottawa with uh, what's happening with uh, a new conservative leader and an announcement uh, from the prime minister yesterday uh, about how his government plans to deal with the inflation problem that we're having right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, yesterday, uh, Pierre Polyev blasted uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his first appearance in front of the reporters since uh, winning the conservative leadership. Uh, Trudeau announced policies to respond to the cost of living crisis, which, of course, is being caused by inflation. Uh, that includes a doubling of the GST benefit, uh, temporary dental care benefit programs, and a number of other things. Polyev, of course, says the measures don't really tackle the problem. Global's Abigail Beeman has the details. In a three-part announcement, the Prime Minister says will be the first piece of legislation tabled when the House returns next week. The Liberals are promising to double the GST credit for six months, offer direct payments for dental care for low-income, uninsured children under 12 this year, and a one-time $500 top-up to the Canada housing benefit for renters. This will cost more than $4.5 billion. $3.1 billion is on top of money already promised in Budget 2020. The help we're announcing today will make a big difference for the people who get it in a targeted way that will not stoke inflation. Well, uh, it's game on uh, between Mr. Polyev and uh, the Prime Minister, of course, and a lot of people are uh, looking with great anticipation to the opening of Parliament next week and uh, where these two will go at it, and you can bet that they will go at it. Uh, to uh, talk about the, uh, the the lay of the land up in Ottawa these days and what's going to be happening, uh, please to welcome back to the program, Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist. Uh, Justin, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, you've seen the, the the back and forth that's going on here right now uh, between Mr. Polyev and, and the Prime Minister. Talk to me about, about your perception of what's going to be happening next week. Uh, clearly, Polyev has, has laid a, a line in the sand here. Uh, and simply say these guys are not doing enough. Uh, it's the government's fault that inflation is the way it is these days. Uh, the liberals are trying to punch back in here. Where, where do you see this going? Um, I, I can't imagine it goes anywhere good. I mean, I mean, the fundamental point of Polyev's criticism of the state of inflation is is completely fantastical. It's made up, right? Pierre Polyev's point for the past several months, particularly you heard him uh, say this the night he won his leadership race, you heard him say it again yesterday, is that the only reason Canada has inflation is because this government couldn't stop spending, right? You know, that is his uh, point of view here, that the, the CERB benefit, that the wage subsidy, that every dollar of supports that went out to the public and to businesses during COVID-19 directly drove up inflation. You know, that is his, his, his point of view, that um, the government can't be trusted to do anything further because uh, they, they've made the problem in the first place, and every dollar they're spending now or every uh, tax relief they're giving now is, is only going to worsen the problem or um, you potentially will have a very little effect. Um, it's a bit of a strange position to take. I mean, it's actually factually untrue. We know full well that uh, government supports in Canada have probably contributed to maybe a 1.5 
point increase in the rate of inflation, uh, the, the remainder, you know, the remaining five, six points comes almost exclusively from um, international uh, variables from the war in Ukraine uh, to the supply chain crunch. So for, as, for just a starting point, what he's saying is untrue. Um, his, his line of attack is almost even more bewildering. I mean, the, the government's coming out with um, direct GAC, GST uh, rebates, which is, is basically giving people their tax money back to try and lessen the blow of inflation. Paul Liev is even against that, saying it won't work because it'll just be eaten up by inflation. You know, his solution to this problem isn't there. You know, he basically says that if we stop printing money, then inflation will go away, which I don't think any serious economist actually treats as credible. So uh, we're really playing in a fantasy land to some degree. We're playing you know, in a sort of meme-based politics with, with no serious sort of scrutiny behind what Polio is saying. You know, all that being said, I mean, you know, this, prime, this package from the prime minister is not going to solve the problem either. At best, it might put a little bit of money back in people's pockets, but um, you know, it, it will do nothing to address inflation, and it could make it slightly worse. I, I, there's, well, I, there's a number of reasons, uh, the speculative reasons, I guess, as to why he's doing this. I don't know if you saw Michael Deatter's co- uh, editorial cartoon last week. Uh, for those who didn't, it's, it's uh, his caricature, Paulie, of standing beside a great big jug of Kool-Aid, uh, which says conspiracy theories. And, and, and the quote is, uh, drink up, everybody. Uh, and and you, I, I agree with your assessment of Paulie of his policies and, and he, his assessment of what's causing inflation. But he's tapping into the fact that a lot of people in this country don't like Justin Trudeau. Forget about the liberals and their policy. They just don't like Justin Trudeau. And he wants to give them another reason or more of a reason to like him even less. Uh, so, they, you know, he's, he's telling them this because a lot of people want to believe that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And you've seen this through his entire race for the leadership. It's been very little about putting together a coherent strategy for how he wants to govern the country. There's a couple things in there. We can talk about them. But um, you know, what he's really vying for is to um, push down Trudeau's prop- popularity to the point where he just can't cobble together the coalition that he once could. And, I mean, that is a really cynical strategy that, frankly, he stole from Justin Trudeau, right? Justin Trudeau's strategy the last two elections has been to, uh, to bludgeon his opponents and to make them wear all sorts of ridiculous things, you know, some things somewhat credible, many things not, you know, alleging that Aaron O'Toole is going to restrict the right to abortion, um, you know, alleging that these, these leaders are going to, you know, put you know, AR-15s back on the street. You know, there might be a little bit of, uh, you know, rationale behind his lines of attack, but he has weaponized them in such a way that has completely eviscerated any sort of sensible discussion on the campaign trail and has just made it a choice between either you vote for me, or you vote for the guy who's going to take away your right to an abortion and dump, you know, assault weapons on the street, right? So, so Pierre Polyev is emulating what he sees the prime minister doing, and and the two of them are going to go into the next, you know, year, two years, and then into the campaign just trading body blows. It's going to be one of the most miserable, unfortunate elections you've ever had. We're going to see two leaders that I will guarantee you will have the lowest approval slash popularity ratings of any two candidates going into a race like this. Uh, and uh, you know, who emerges on top of this heap of garbage, I think is going to be, it remains to be seen. But you know, I'd give the edge to Trudeau because at the very least, he has the benefit of some credible policy, some credible strategy of how to govern the country behind him. Do you get the feeling, though, as as, you, as we look at what's going to be happening down the road, and, and clearly, you're, you're right, I mean, these guys are pretty much set the battleground here, uh, that, you know, there's there's going to be a whole population of Canadians right now that are saying, look, it, you two guys, would you put the gloves down for a second and, and look after us? 
there's a lot that has to happen here. And, and you know, uh, the criticisms of Polyev, and I, I'm sure you get this all the time too, Justin. I mean, every time I say something about this, I get, yeah, well, what about Trudeau? There's a lot to, to be concerned about, about the liberal policies and some of the stuff they've done. I get that. Uh, you know, I, 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 you're absolutely right at the time. Uh, of the pandemic and the shutdown, uh, government assistance, I think, was absolutely necessary. Did it go on too long? Probably did. Does it contribute yeah. to inflation? As you mentioned, yeah, a little bit, uh, but it's not the cause for it. But, you know, this, this is politics today, Justin. You and I have talked about this in the past. It's like you say, take a, a shred of truth and and build some BS around it, and, and people will buy it. And the, everybody's doing it right now. It's the way they play the game. Yeah, that's right, and and I think doing this sort of whataboutism between the two the two candidates is, is sort of disingenuous in many cases, right? You know, during the convoy, for example, was Justin Trudeau callous to the extreme, uh, moronic in the way he decided to characterize them? Um, you know, in some cases, radicalizing in his attempts to sort of make them a dangerous minority. Absolutely, I mean, you 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 heard him on several occasions say, um, you know, of the unvaccinated portion of Canadians. Yeah, some are fine, some are just confused, but many of them are, are, are racist and misogynists and extremists. Um, without sort of qualifying that without trying to um, actually build a bridge to those folks who, who don't trust the vaccines or who themselves may be conspiracy theorists, but not otherwise bad people. I mean, he, he, he certainly deserves to wear some blame for that. But on the flip side, you have someone like Pierre Polyev, who didn't go down there to try and encourage folks to get vaccinated, didn't go down there to try and encourage people to go home to, to, to protest uh, kind of reasonably responsibly. He went down there to throw gasoline on the fire, right? And, and he went down there to engage in conspiracy theories around the World Economic Forum. He went down there to play into people's sort of apocalyptic fantasies that the government is being controlled by a secret society in, in Switzerland, right? You know, I don't think you can equate those two things. I think the prime minister deserves an enormous amount of criticism for a variety of things. But I think to, to put that on the same platform as Pierre Polyev, who really has no coherent strategy for how he wants to govern the country, who has repeatedly uh, worsened the, the, the polarization we've seen in this country, and who is doing it entirely for his own political ends, I, I think it, it, they're not the same thing. Now, you, you're right. I think people want something better than this, right? They don't want to have to choose between, you know, two sides of the same coin. I mean, people want something different. And, and what's so unfortunate is that those other options just aren't there. I mean, you know, never mind the other parties, you know, the NDP has been totally absent. You know, ever since they signed this cooperation agreement with the Liberal Party, they have taken a back seat and have really just, you know, occasionally given little golf claps to whatever Justin Trudeau kind of deigns to take from their platform. It's a really sad state of affairs, and we desperately deserve something better than this. But the thing that I find frustrating, and I think most Canadians do, is that there's, as as we've just described, there's a, there's a real polarization that's happening in politics, not just in Canada, it's happening in, in many other countries too. But the overwhelming majority of people in this country, anyway, are in the political middle. They they don't adhere to to the extremist left or the extremist right. Uh, they're just saying, look, we just want to get along, and you know, uh, we we want to be able to live, we want to be able to pay our, our our mortgages, we want to be able to send our kids through school, et cetera, et cetera. And and that seems to be lost on the, on the people in Ottawa right now, as you say, it's it's a it's a, a dogfight right now in, in the commons. It's not like, okay, what can we do for Canadians? And it, it's happening so often right now. It's no wonder a lot of people are getting turned off politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree that the center is sort of this platonic idea of politics that we all have to strive for, because too often in this country, center means liberal, or, you know, previously the progressive conservative party sometimes. You know, I, I tend to think that 
Canadians don't really care where on the political spectrum things fall, as long as they're reasonable and thoughtful and effective, right? I mean, in the yeah, past, exactly. People have taken a, a big swing on things that you would consider on the on the, on the far left. I mean, things like you know, nationalized healthcare, socialized healthcare. They've also you know tilted pretty uh, considerably to the to, to the right. I mean, you know, especially in, when times are tough. You know, Canadians have a real habit of saying, "Let's tighten up our belts. Let's you know, let, let, let's let's deal with um, the deficit. Let's deal with you know, rising costs or, or inflation or what have you." So I, I, I don't. I don't tend to think that the center is this, this, this perfect middle ground. I think all too often it gets us to a mushy middle. But, you know, that's the thing. If somebody could come out with some real aggressive, thoughtful ideas from all around the spectrum, I think they would do really well. And, I mean, watching that leadership race, there was a candidate who came dead last, or I think 1% of the vote, named Scott Atchison, who I thought embodied this in, in, a, in a really wonderful way. I mean, he put forward a series of really in-depth, thoughtful policies. His housing policy made, made Pierre Pauly um, look like a like a cartoon scribbled on the back of a of a, of a napkin, and you, he he actually came out against supply management, one of the most the sacred cow, if you will, of, of Canadian policy. He had a whole bunch of ideas there on how to restructure our economy, deal with some of the labor shortages, deal with some of our housing shortages. That I thought was really thoughtful, and I think if you put that sort of thing to the general public, they'd probably be pretty excited about it. And there's been some previous kind of good ideas thrown about on the uh, on the left from the Green Party as well. Um, so you know, I tend to think that if someone can figure out how to unlock all of this and come forward to the public with a coherent platform that kind of lets them step away from this miserable slap fest between uh, Polyev and Trudeau, they might just take it. Exactly, but uh, I, as you say, that's, uh, Atchison was that guy in the leadership race, and and you saw where he finished. And and I don't yeah. see too many other people coming forward and saying, "Let's try to do that." And when, by the way, I t- when I say we're in the middle, I, I, you're right. I don't want us to be the mushy middle. I mean, we'll we'll gravitate to whomever can give us the best opportunity for a better life. Uh, you know, they they got tired of Brian Mulroney after a few terms too, and they put the Liberals back in. People tend to forget just how deeply in debt we were at that time. And and one of the one of the most, I guess effective finance ministers we've had, I guess, over the last 40 or 50 years uh, was Paul Martin uh, because he got rid of that debt and, and we actually had 10 years of surpluses and people hated him for it. I mean, he did a lot of serious cuts. He figured, hey, that's not what a liberal does, but it's, it's something that had to be done. Yet, it's, we, I guess what we're looking for here is a hybrid of some description and uh, there doesn't seem to be one on the horizon right now. Yeah, and, and, and you know, talking about the Liberal Party, it's been really unfortunate that you know this Prime Minister, uh, who's frankly governing over the last couple of years like a bit of a control freak, has ostracized and alienated and pushed out all of the really thoughtful people who I think could really you know step into that breach and figure out what those those solutions look like. Bill Morneau, James Telfot, Jody Wilson-Raybould, a handful of others, right? You know, these these are people who uh, I think were, were real asset to our government and they're gone now and i mean you know this is functionally a government of of, of one guy and a few a few senior staffers and i think we're, we're, we're worse off for it so you know again i i understand why people are going to gravitate to pierre polyev i think it's unfortunate i think he has played the most cynical uh, game of politics i've ever seen in this country I, I i think it's it's morally reprehensible that he's decided to weaponize people who um you know don't need weaponization they need someone to to speak frankly to them and and to to hear them out but also to say no what you're espousing is conspiracy theory he's decided to weaponize them because he believes that beating trudeau is important more important than anything else and is worth any risk he's going to take on uh, by playing this game and i think it it, it is it maybe a natural outcome from a prime minister who has spent the last seven years playing in his own way, a very cynical game of, of you know, you have to trust me because the other guys are dangerous radicals. 
Well, it begins, I guess, next week, and we'll just see how this plays out. Uh, Justin, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for having me. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, with his perspective on what's going to be happening in Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Groups representing thousands of public sector employees are going up against the Ontario government in court starting today over a contentious law that has capped wages for workers. You know what we're talking about here. Uh, The case is set to be heard in Toronto over the next few days. Karen Rebo has some details for us. The labour groups are challenging the constitutionality of Bill 124. The law, passed in 2019, limits wage increases at 1% per year for public sector workers. The provisions of the bill were to be in effect for three years as new contracts were negotiated. Doug Ford's Tory government said the law was a time-limited approach to help eliminate the deficit. But nurses, teachers and Ontario public service workers consider the approach unfair and a violation of charter rights that protect meaning full collective bargaining. They're hoping the court will agree and deem it unconstitutional. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So what's going to happen and uh, what's been the impact of this legislation? Let's talk a little bit about that with our next guest, Mike Schreiner, who is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, MPP for Guelph. Uh, Mike, uh, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, hey, Bill. Always a pleasure to be on. Let's let's talk a little about this legislation, and and we've heard the characterizations. You know, the first part of the pandemic, the premier was calling these our healthcare heroes, and our you know we couldn't do this without our nurses and our doctors. And then, bingo, well, you get this legislation, uh, and it's had an impact on the on the industry for sure, and on healthcare in this year. But it's been a negative impact. Uh, and I guess maybe the first question is: uh, We're going to court here. How comfortable do you feel about that? Because when the Ontario government usually goes to court, it doesn't go well for the Ontario government. Well, the Doug Ford government in particular has a long history of losing court battles and wasting millions of dollars uh, in, you know, whether it's uh, trying to sabotage climate solutions or taking away bargaining rights, uh, etc. And the courts have ruled in the past uh, against the McGuinty government when the Dalton McGuinty took away teachers' rights to bargain. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, unions have a very good case here. But, you know, the more important thing is, Bill, is, you know, I've had so many nurses and frontline healthcare workers tell me, stop banging up pots and pans, stop calling me a hero, and actually empower me to negotiate fair wages, fair benefits, and better working conditions. I mean, the fact that Doug Ford is frozen or capped wages and benefits at 1%, during a healthcare crisis has actually made the crisis worse. And to me, it's completely disrespectful of the frontline healthcare heroes who have been working such long, hard hours and incredibly difficult uh, condition, working conditions, caring for our loved ones, to say to them that your wages and benefits will be capped and you can't negotiate for, for better ones or better working conditions. It's just wrong. There's an, an elementary point to this too and i think you and i've had this discussion in the past uh one of the basis for this uh, challenge of course is, is the canadian charter of rights and freedoms that basically does protect the meaningful collective bargaining right i mean that's that's enshrined in the charter of rights and freedoms and and to my mind and to, as i read this mike uh, this this legislation is a clear violation of that you, you, in other words there's no bargaining we're telling you how much you're going to get and that's all there is to it Oh, we seem to be having a small technical problem here. We'll get that fixed up in just a couple of seconds. Uh, talking with Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Uh, and the subject, of course, is the uh, court case, which uh, begins today in Toronto and uh, has to do with uh, Bill 124. 
a uh, very contentious piece of legislation. And, and we've been talking about that legislation for the longest time uh, because of the impact that it's had on, on a number of uh, healthcare workers, of course, and, and other people in, in, in the public sector. And, and the concern here is exactly what's going to happen in this court case. Uh, and as Mike was just mentioning, uh, the Ontario government, and not just the Ford government, but the Ontario government, uh, has been challenged about some of the legislation in the past, and uh, it has not gone well for the government. Uh, gone well for the people, by, by all means, but uh, but by all stretches of imagination, we're kind of concerned about what's going to be happening today. I think we have Mike back, do we, Mike? Yeah, sorry about that, Bill. We had a, I think my my internet had a page there, but it's back now. Good to have it. Okay. Uh, my point I was making, I wanted to get a comment from you on, is that, that I know it's one of the points that these people are going to make in court today. Uh, they cite the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, which guarantees collective bargaining. But this bill, which has been passed and been in law, as you mentioned, for a, f a few years now, is a clear violation of that. It doesn't allow any collective bargaining at all. Oh, absolutely, Bill. And, you know, I would say to the credit of uh, nurses unions and other public sector unions have really tried to appeal to the premier to do the right thing and say, you know what, allow us to negotiate fair wages and fair benefits, uh, especially given the working conditions uh, frontline healthcare workers have been have been facing. And also the fact that, you know, we are experiencing significant inflation uh, and to cap wages at, at such an, you know, inflationary period is essentially a significant wage cut to people who have been working in very challenging situations, caring for our loved ones during an incredibly difficult time. It's just a slap in the face to them. And so, you know, those of us in, in opposition, we've been trying to push the premier and say, you know, do the right thing for nurses and frontline healthcare workers. Do the right thing for Ontarians who want access to high quality public health care. I mean, one of the reasons we're seeing emergency room closures and, and such long ER wait times is that our hospitals are understaffed. Well, one of the reasons our hospitals are understaffed is that so many nurses have retired early or just left the profession because they feel so disrespected by the premier. Well, not only disrespected, but they're in a financial crunch right now. I mean, the, the economic picture in the in the province has changed dramatically, Mike, since 2019 when they first introduced this legislation, uh, and people are hurting, and that includes nurses. And uh, you know, there's there's also an element. Of, uh, I'm sure this is going to come up in the court uh, case in the next couple of days as well uh, about this perhaps being a gender based discrimination. Ninety percent of the nurses, according to the ONA, are females, and uh, this is again an unfair and unfair wage system. Uh, you know, we've been talking about gender parity for the longest time here. Now, this basically discriminates against a large female workforce for the most part. And and you've got to ask yourself, you know, what was the motivation behind that? Was it to save money or is it because we want to be fair with people? And and it, it's this has got a, a far reaching ramifications, uh, as you mentioned, because it's not just you know, being onerous to the people. People are walking away from this. Uh, you know, they just announced, and you and I had that discussion a week or so ago, they're going to hire more nurses, they're going to make it easier for uh, accreditation. That's great, but for every five nurses that come in you know, the front door, there's three of them going out the back door saying, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, exactly, Bill. And, you know, I was speaking with a nurse yesterday uh, at an event I was at, and she said to me, she said, Mike, you know, I don't want anybody to bang on pots and pans. I just want to be paid a fair wage. And she's like, you know, I'm likely going to leave the profession because – with so many shortages in 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 the economy she's like 
I can go get a better paying job somewhere else where I work less hours, have better working conditions. I don't have to do shift work. And she's like, I love being a nurse, but like, you know, if I'm going to be treated like this and if my family's going to suffer uh, from an affordability standpoint, you know, I'm going to go somewhere where I can get better pay, have better working conditions and, and better working hours. And I was like, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't blame you. I'm like, I, I respect you making that decision. And I, I said, I, just so you know, I'm going to do everything possible to get the premier to rebuild bill, repeal bill 124 and, and, you know, provide you with the ability to bargain fair wages and better working conditions and, and better benefits. And, and you're right about the, the gender nature of this. I mean, predominantly male professions. And, you know, we don't want to overstate this because there are women in policing, for example, and men in nursing. But, you know, uh, predominantly male professions like policing were, were exempted from wage restraint. But predominantly female professions like nursing uh, were subject to um, the wage cap. And so there is a gendered element to this that I think is an important part of the conversation and an important part of the discussion around equal pay. Well, and I know part of the government's response to this has been, well, you know, we just gave them a big $5,000 bonus, uh, which, but I, I got three things to say about that. And this is after talking with a number of nurses. Uh, first of all, it's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what they need. This has been going on for years now. Uh, the other element to it, not everybody is is uh, going to get that. It's, it's only a certain number of people that are actually going to be able to uh, qualify for that. Uh, and, and I've talked to a bunch of nurses right now that says, I haven't seen any money, uh, a great promise, but, uh, you know, I've been watch, watching for it and it just hasn't happened. So, you know, was that a PR move just to try to, you know, placate some people and say help is on the way, what little help it is, as opposed to, as you say, a fair wage? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I've heard the same thing from so many nurses that, uh, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. I, I, tell you, I can't tell you how many nurses who are frustrated who are saying like, I'm not even going to qualify for it. And and the other one I've heard that you didn't bring up is that it won't count towards their pensionable earnings either because it's not part of the um, like regular wage structure. So there's so many problems with it. And to me, it just seemed like a PR move. Uh, to help mitigate the criticism the Ford government has been facing, you know, not only from nurses, but just the general public. Because most people I talk to understand just how unfair capping wages and benefits, and sometimes I want to emphasize the benefits too, because there's been a lot of studies showing the, the mental health challenges that nurses are facing right now, given all the trauma they've experienced over the last two years. And things like their access to mental health benefits are capped as well. And so, you know, it's just wrong. And, you know, the premier needs to do the right thing, not only for nurses and other frontline healthcare workers, but just the public at large. I mean, we want a publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system that, that delivers timely care to people. And we're not going to have that if we don't have the people to actually care for us. And nurses are a critical uh, a part of providing that care. I, I'm sure you know of people, I, and I have one, actually, somebody I know quite well who was a, a, an RN, uh, and left the profession. I just said, you know, I can't do this anymore, uh, and is now waiting on tables. And, and you know, she said, you know, it's not as much money, uh, you know, but that's the reality. She says, I, you know, I, I don't have to work overnight shifts. I, you know, she's got a, a relatively young family. I don't have to go running around looking for care. I can make my own hours. And, you know, she says it's it's a change we had to make. And it's, it wasn't the best option to go to it, but it was better than what she was doing. She was just at the end of her rope. And I know a lot of her coworkers are in the same situation. 
Yeah, Bill, I've, I can't tell you, I've talked to so many nurses in, in that situation and also talked to nurses who are, who are barely hanging on and are saying, you know, we completely understand why so many of our colleagues are deciding to leave the profession or retire early uh, or in some cases now uh, move out of like permanent full-time work and become agency nurses uh, working for a private company where they get paid much more per hour, uh, but have more flexibility in terms of their work schedules, uh, which is now costing the healthcare system additional millions of dollars, which to me is just an example of how fiscally irresponsible the Ford government is being with this, that, you know, why not just you know, allow nurses and other frontline healthcare workers to bargain fair wages and fair benefits and better working conditions. Clearly, the money is in the system because it's being siphoned off to these private nursing agencies now in the tunes of millions of dollars. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't know at this point if the government is just being stubborn and they don't want to admit that they, uh, but what's happening, you know, really undermines their fiscal and financial arguments and from a what's best for the healthcare system, the people who deliver that care and the people receiving that care, uh, clearly Bill 124 is, is a loser. Well, we know the court case, as they say, is going to take about 10 days. But you know what I, I find tragic about this, Mike, is you know what the game is going to be played here. Even if the court rules in the favor of, of, of the public service, uh, and I hope they do, uh, the government's likely to appeal it, which is only going to kick it further down the road. And that's going to be another delay of God knows how many months. Uh, so that when we're looking for justice, uh, it's 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 a long way away, according to the system that these guys are going to play here. And that's what they did with, as you say, with the carbon tax uh, challenge. And, and it cost us... Well, I know they set $30 million aside for that court case out of taxpayers' money. I assume they spent most of it on that because there was an appeal as well. I don't know how much they're spending trying to defend this in court now, but again, that's our money they're playing with. Absolutely. I mean, to add insult to injury, uh, you know, the Ford government is, you know, not only uh, putting our healthcare system at risk and really uh, treating the frontline workers who provide that care in such a disrespectful way. Uh, they're spending millions of dollars of our tax dollars trying to fight it in court, uh, which just to me just adds additional insult to what's happening here. And again, you know, for a government that, you know, tries to claim that they have some level of fiscal responsibility, like this is completely fiscally irresponsible to um, put our public health care system in jeopardy, not compensate uh, essential workers uh, fairly, and then to spend millions of our tax dollars fighting it in court. It's just wrong. Well, we'll certainly see how it unfolds over the next couple of days. Mike, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, anytime, Bill. This is a really important topic of conversation. Absolutely. Mike Schreiner, uh, leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, MPP for Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In a precedent-setting decision, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice has upheld Seneca College's vaccine mandate for the current school year. Uh, in the decision, Superior Court Judge William D. Black found that Seneca College did not contradict the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health with his vaccination guidance. Uh, joining us to talk about the decision and, and the implications, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fergiwelli, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be on. 
this is a, a very timely thing, of course, because we're getting back into the idea of vaccine mandates as people are going back to school. We had the debate, even about mask wearing now. And uh, I think a lot of it's predicated on the fact that everybody seems to think the pandemic is over and it isn't. But uh, what was your reaction to the court's decision on this issue? I wasn't surprised by it, Bill, frankly. Um, the decision here that the, the individuals who brought this application faced a high hurdle here because what they were seeking was actually an injunction. And um, so what, what this decision was about was these two students um, are going to bring a charter challenge uh, to the vaccine mandate of Seneca College, um, alleging that the, that the mandate um, uh, breaches the charter in a variety of ways. But what they sought first and what this decision is about is a temporary injunction. Uh, and it's an injunction in which they'd be allowed to go to school unvaccinated and thus breach the policy. So the, 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 the policy wouldn't apply to them while they go to school. But they admitted and their lawyers admitted um, that if they get this injunction, the, the motion as a whole won't be ready for another year or two. So it, it would essentially be a temporary injunction that would essentially uh, uh, decide the matter as it is. And in those cases, individuals have a very high hurdle to satisfy uh, because basically you're getting a temporary injunction that gets you everything you want in the first place. Um, so it's always going to be very tough for them on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, you've got a situation where um, th this uh, vaccine mandate from Seneca is very popular. The vast majority of students there are, are vaccinated. The vast majority of staff, uh, or in fact, uh, not just vaccinated, excuse me, but are vaccinated and support the policy and are happy it exists. Um, and, and so that's a factor as well here uh, that goes into the, the, the policy and, and why it was enacted in the first place. Explain to us maybe why that is important. Is it, in other words, it's not just that it's popular. In other words, it's it, or is it the reverse of that? That the fact that such a high percentage of staff and students have already been vaccinated uh, proves that the mandate is not onerous. Is is that the, the the thrust of that? Yes, and that goes hand in hand with the duty Seneca has to provide a safe workplace for people. And so the policy has been linked in science. Uh, to the promotion of the health and wellness of the people there. And the chief medical officer, the, the uh, original argument from the applicants here was, look, uh, the chief medical officer of health said no more vaccine mandates are required uh, by public institutions. But what the chief medical officer of health said was, while it's not a requirement, we strongly urge these institutions to have a mandatory vaccine policy. Uh, and so Seneca obliged that strong recommendation. Um, and, and they made a forceful argument that, look, we've got thousands and thousands of students here uh, and staff here who have vaccinated themselves. Uh, and, and if you start introducing unvaccinated people here as we return to in-person learning, it is going to essentially uh, put their health at risk uh, whereas with the, the, the mandatory vaccine policy, uh, uh, those, health risks, those health risks are significantly decreased. I, I know you and I have had this discussion in the past, and, uh, and, and I think it's germane to this too. It's, it comes down to charter rights, doesn't it, and, and the interpretation of this. And, uh, and the, the fact that I think an awful lot of people 
simply because we're inundated with the American culture, uh, seem to to conflate our Charter of Rights uh, with the the rights that the United States uh, Constitution gives them, and, and it's a different perspective, isn't it? Yeah, ours is much more about balancing and the idea of the community as a whole having a stake in the charter analysis is much more robust here than it is in the United States. Uh, but Bill, the other part of this, when you actually read the decision, um, it, it's it's instructive to see how weak the charter claims seem to be on their face here from the two applicants. So as an example, um, they claim that um, their freedom of religion and belief and conscience has been violated. But when the judge actually looks at the evidence here, um, there's no religious basis for their objection at all. It seems these two individuals just sort of went down a YouTube rabbit hole and and watched some things to do with the trucker convoy and, and some um, vaccine skeptics on YouTube and said, I, I just don't want to get vaccinated and so you start to ask yourself even on the individual side of that ledger here um that claims start to look really weak it's very different if somebody has a significant value structure and belief system and religious system that that informs their decision not to get vaccinated um uh that was missing here so you're right the idea of the balancing in the community is significant here. But when this judge was faced with this record, based on my read of his decision, um, he saw this as a very weak case for individuals who wanted to get an injunction. So even that side of the balancing, the individual side here, the evidence in front of the judge was quite weak. Well, and again, this is variation on the theme of a lot of people that have protested vaccine mandates in the past. As you say, the trucker's mandate comes to mind, but there have been other situations, not necessarily in the courts, but in the court of public opinion, I suppose. And and as I think you've stated, and I, I'll paraphrase this, uh, but essentially, uh, you have the right to not get vaccinated if you don't want to get vaccinated, but there are implications to that. Well, like every other choice we make, there are implications, and, and there are things that you know that that are going to just change our lives as a result you know i i can go and drink 18 glasses of wine and get behind the wheel of my car but if there are going to be ramifications to that as well and and, and that's i guess where people get lost in this thing uh, nobody's actually going to hold you down and 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 vaccinate you but they're saying if you don't do it well there's some things you can do and some things you can't do because of the public health aspect of this that's right. And, and I, I think it's, it's sort of heightened because you're talking about employment or in this case, education, which is, which is important for people. It's a massive part of people's lives. But inherent in every job you have, uh, for those of us in the workforce, as an example, as you say, there's choices uh, that come into play here as to things that you can and cannot do. Um, uh, and in some cases, it may be a mandatory vaccination policy. In other cases, there are other significant policies um, which put burdens on people or, or have people choose to do things that they may not want to do. But that's the essence of it. And, and both this justice, Justice Black, and uh, he, he cited another judge, Justice Akbarali, who who. Uh, considered the same argument with respect to the, the TTC in Toronto and their mandatory vaccine policy and also upheld that policy uh, or, or decline an injunction in that policy. They both said, listen, choices have consequences. And it's not ideal uh, for these individuals to have to decide to take a vaccine if they don't want to take that. 
But the fact of the matter is we're in a global pandemic. And and as part of that, hard decisions need to be made and hard choices need to be put on people. And as you say, if they refuse to do that, if they refuse to get the vaccine, it does not mean that they will be held down and vaccinated. It does not mean that they'll be jailed. It does not mean that uh, uh, in the charter realm, they're going to lose their liberty in the sense of being put in jail for not being vaccinated. Uh, what it means, though, is they're not allowed to go into that workplace. And if they can't be accommodated, then they're very much at risk of losing their job. Uh, and that's the choice that they're faced. And, and that's because we're in a pandemic that forces hard choices. And, and I know you mentioned what the TTC situation. I, I know another, uh, I, I guess a number of municipalities actually uh, were in a similar situation uh, to do with uh, you know, civic employees. Toronto, I know, and, and Hamilton just recently. And a number of people were facing, uh, you know, losing their jobs uh, after, you know, a couple of times where they extended to try to get them to vaccinated. They finally dropped it because the numbers are so low, I guess, now. But I guess what we always want to do in a situation like this, uh, Andrew, is, 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 understand the implications of this as you say this was about one particular case uh but it does i i think according to what some of the lawyers for this the college were saying this sets the precedent going forward now that the institutions or employers do have the right to impose or demand uh vaccination uh, mandates if in fact they feel it's necessary or if in case if, to extend to your point if the chief medical officer says that you need to do this that, that does this prohibit or any any further challenges to this? Is this the standard now? Uh, I would say it's a very powerful precedent for individuals who want to bring injunctions to try to get around a vaccine mandate. Uh, and I would say that it's also probably a signal uh, that a vaccine mandate will survive charter scrutiny in many cases. So I, I really think that's the effect of this, um, is that if individuals want to try to not be subject to a vac vaccine mandate uh, at a workplace, um, at a public workplace, uh, then um, uh, then uh, this is going to be very difficult for them to get around. There's another issue here, which is that the charter rights only apply when you're dealing with the public. And the judge made an assumption here that a university is a public institution in the way that the police are. And so the charter applies to them. We're in a different realm with respect to private employers who put forward uh, a vaccine policy. So if, if a radio station decides to put in a mandatory vaccine policy, there are different uh, ideas at play because the charter doesn't necessarily apply in those situations. But for the vast numbers of people who work for public institutions, that's what this case goes towards. And, and what it signals is that if you, if you want to try to bring a charter challenge here to say, that vaccine policies are unconstitutional. You're going to have a very high hurdle, and the judges are very skeptical about it. Do do businesses then, in in that situation that you just talked about, Andrew, have that right to set parameters and standards? I mean, I, I would think of the case. Actually, it was a BC case, I guess, a couple of years ago. I think you and I had that discussion at the time. As a restaurant, and and they demanded that all their their female servers had to wear high heels for like seven, eight hour shifts, etc. And and one of the employees took them to court on that on that premise and said it, it was a health issue, really, because it, it, it's painful to do that. I'm told uh, for that length mm -hmm. of time, and they won their case. 
so there are even limits, I guess, to what employers can demand of their employees. Yeah. So for those limits, you're looking at the human rights codes that are provincial uh, and also potentially the civil courts. Um, If there's damages and and someone wanted to, say, sue their employer about it, that would be the avenue. But it wouldn't be a charter challenge because the charter only applies to public or state actors. Um, It was a very important compromise in our charter that the charter not apply to to, impl- to private employers, uh, the, the more conservative uh, members of um, uh, Canadian uh, politicians, the more conservative Canadian politicians involved in the charter negotiations demanded that. Um, and so now uh, individuals who work for private employers who are faced with vaccine mandates do not uh, uh, get the benefit of charter protection. They would have to go through uh, human rights tribunals uh, or the civil courts. All right, so it's two different systems altogether. And, and when I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but and uh, I'd like to think that uh, as as much as you say, this is going to set a, a strong uh, precedent. And uh, if anything comes forward again, I mean, in in a perfect world, we're not going to have a, have any more vaccine mandates. But I think uh, the medical officers and and the experts are telling us right now that it's a, it's a different world in which we live these days, and uh, we may in, in fact you know, be faced with something like this. I hope not. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the possibilities there were maybe 20 years ago, we never would have said that. Uh, but it's interesting to see just what is going to happen in the ramifications of this uh, for institutions like this. And and going forward, whether or not this is something that, that they're going to rely on and, and, and start to quote in situations like this, because uh, I, I've just got the sense that there's an awful lot of people out there that were never comfortable with the mandates. I saw that in Ottawa, of course, and in some other places where it's been displayed. So it's notwithstanding this decision, uh, Andrew, I get the sense that this is an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. No, the the only thing I think that that is really going to make this go away is time and 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 the the passage of time eventually leading to the lessening of the mandates um, as as covid becomes um, either either the, the virus itself devolves further to an even less deadly form that it's in uh, than it's in now or frankly we just become more used to living with it in our lives um, I, I, I think you'll, we've generally in the last two years, of course, seen a trend uh, that, that has gone more towards sort of the personal liberties and the balancing of this. Uh, you know, back in, in early 2020, we were all in lockdown yeah. um, and we had situations where there were mask mandates everywhere. Um, and, and you're seeing gradually that a move away from that and towards more of a pre-COVID life. Um, at some point, if you look at that as a, as a rational trajectory for, or a predictive trajectory for where we're going to go, um, then vaccine mandates will quietly start to slip away. But the fact of the matter is, um, while there are some louder members of society um, who uh, uh, protest the vaccine mandates, I don't think the vast majority of people are with them right now. And the vast majority of people, I think, have been vaccinated and, and, and would prefer or, or demand to be in a workplace where everybody else is vaccinated. And so at least as of right now, um, the vaccine mandates are going to be a part of people's lives. Um, and and it, it may be that time moves us away from that, but we're not there yet. 
Exactly. Andrew, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Andrew Fujirelli, a lecturer from the Faculty of Law course at the University of Toronto. And I know this is a, a big kettle of fish for an awful lot of people, and they, they're still not going to get over this. I understand that. But uh, Howard Levitt, who is actually representing Seneca in this case, a very famous employment lawyer that who we've had on the show many times, uh, says the decision entirely demolishes and annihilates all arguments that employers do not have the right to require people to be vaccinated at the time. So he basically said that's a falsehood. Uh, they do have that power and that authority to be able to do that. It may not be comfortable with that, some of us, but it's the way it is. And I think they came down on the right side in this particular issue anyway about mandates and the, the importance of, for public health. What's that old phrase that uh, you, you know, yeah, your right to do what you want, wherever you want, to whomever you want uh, is, is not the same in, in Canada as it is in the United States as long as you don't bring harm to anybody else. And if you bring a, a vax or a, a, a pandemic or some sort of a, an Omicron virus into the workplace, you're harming other people. And that's, I think, the premise for the mandates and for the law and for that court decision. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.